Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Judiciary system all not working. They think it is worth dying in a foreign country than coming back to Ghana. This one is fascinating. It says that Ghana is one of the most unserious countries in the world. No vision. I'm a teacher in Japan teaching English. I'm better off now than I was in Ghana. And the only thing that will make me come back in Ghana is when Ghana wins the AFCON or World Cup. Even that really? one, I am only coming back for Soloku and I'll go back. <laughs> <laughs> it says, you people you people are not angry enough and you laughing over it. Ah, here we go. It says, you are laughing about <laughs> countries that are way ahead of you. Uh, your leaders, it says, are hurting you, he says. Uh, this one is from Nana from Spintex. And he says, Evans, what makes the students displaced? Are they citizens of Ukraine? They are thinking they could get into Europe. That, that has always been their plan, to finish in Eastern Europe and then to move to Western Europe to work. And Nana from Spintech sent that one. But this one is asking, can the minister share with us if there is any coordination between the ministry or deputy minister on the ground and then the ranking member, Okuja Tua Black, on the Foreign Affairs uh, Committee in Parliament. And then this one says, again, graduates are struggling to get a job and are being... Um, are scared to create their own jobs. So this and many will get opportunities. Why? Uh, so why go back, back to, Ghana. to Ghana? Ghana needs to be fixed, else people are going to stay overseas. Yeah. And, and Mohammed makes the point. Come. I mean, beyond Ghana, he mm. says, fix the continent. Mm. And that's that. Mm. But but this is the starkest, starkest reminder of 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 what we've done to our continent. That there's a place, there's conflict, and there's dying, there's bloodshed. Ghanaians managed to escape that barely. And they don't want to come back home. I mean, and as Mohammed says, people are willing to die for Ukraine. They want to go. Yeah, ask them. Would they want to die? Let me ask Mohammed this before I run. Mohammed, after 30 seconds, um, there is Boko Haram and conflict in Nigeria currently, right? Are these people willing to enlist in the Nigerian army to go and fight Boko Haram and etc.? Hello, Mohammed. Oh, I, I may have lost Mohammed, but that would have been fascinating to hear. They, they wouldn't enlist no. in the Nigerian army no. to go and fight Boko Haram in Nigeria. No. But they, they are queuing up <laughs> to get Ukrainian visas to travel to Ukraine to go and fight for another country. Yes. Can you imagine that? Yes. And, and, they, and it brings up the question of 
patriotism. Yeah. And of course, there's always a question of don't 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 ask what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Mm-hmm. But the reality is the country must give something. Well, they're very interesting. I mean, tonight we had both sides. The Yahoo says he's patriotic. He wants to be on the first flight out when he's done with school. And, uh, of course, our friend from Denmark who says, no, he's not coming back. Listen, Ma- Marlene is on a first flight out, out, of, out of Ghana. Um, anyway, enjoy the rest of your weekend, people. Uh, chew on everything that we've had tonight um, from our compatriots and, of course, from the continent and Nigeria as well. Enjoy um, the weekend. This is the locker room on Joy 99.7 FM. Hi there, welcome. Julian Laron is with us. Hey, Jules. Hi, Steve. Hi, everyone. I'm very good. How, oh, you didn't ask me how I am. Sorry. <laughs> just assumed. You look good, so I, I thought you were okay, you know. How are you? Fine. I'm good. I actually went to see some live music for the first time in like two years last night. What did you go and see? Uh, Lumineers. Nice. So good. What was the, the best? Day. Them or the fact of going out? Or both? Uh, I'm a social butterfly. I'm, I'm always out, Jules. <laughs> Rarely a night goes by that you wouldn't see me out. In on fact, this is, appro- this is appropriate because with us on the pod, we have the great Archie Rin. Hey, Archie. Hey, Steve. Or oh, ho hey. Ho hey. Ho hey. Good. Love that. Um, Christoph Therese with us. Hey, Christoph. Hey ho, hey ho, and then um, <laughs> oh it's appropriate because Carnival. It's just finished, Archie, and you sent the group some wonderful photographs of your your various costumes. I have, um, you know, Carnival's a very important time in Cologne, uh, particularly right now, uh, given what it stands for in in terms of uh, tolerance and, and and whatnot. And and yeah, uh, I had a few costumes lined up this year, and then. Uh, I don't blue and yellow on um, on Monday for obvious reasons. Nice. It's got to be done. Very nice. I'm trying to work out if you look worse or sound worse. It's all of my mates are ill, um, so this is a husky voice which is coming with the territory after the the previous days. So yeah. For the for the listeners who have children, you look a bit like Mr. Timbuk. You know, uh, Mr. Tumble. Mr. Tumbuk. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I'm just saying. That's uh, Mr. Tumble's Euroleague's debut as well. But he's very <laughs> yeah, welcome. That's true. Yeah. Um, sp- speaking of the um, of, of the kids, Jules, it's World Book Day. So does that mean yours have gone out dressed up as as anything today? That's right. My middle one has gone as David Attenborough, which I thought was very good of him. Uh, he took his. Uh, You've raised them well, Jules. Book. Yeah. Thank you. The little one, she went as uh, Peter Rabbit. Oh. But the cutest outfit ever, and the big one. He's thirteen. He's like, nah, not for me. Anymore. <laughs> so uh, he's gonna have nothing. But yeah, I think what I would do if I was thirteen is just like go in a football shirt and like carry under my arm, like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like yeah, a, that's what a, a copy done, of think, Match yeah. the Day magazine or, or <laughs> exactly. something like that. 
Yeah. I can see you in a Ravenelli shirt, Steve, for World Book Day. 100%. But if it was over my head, I would be banging into <laughs> <That'd> be <great. laughs> I would come out of it looking worse That's than you That's a great one. Oh, you do your hair, like, hair colour, the same as his, so, like, oh, white, basically, yeah. you know. Penalty the white feather. Oh, yeah, yeah. Feather. I mean, at your age, you, you wouldn't be out of character. <laughs> it's when we start getting to those kind of jokes that I know it's time to start the pod. Um, we've got, we, and we have to, actually, because we've got so much to cover. Um, we're going to have much more on, on European football's show of solidarity with the people of Ukraine. We'll get a really powerful first-hand story, actually. So we're going to speak to Jordi Escala, who's the assistant coach of the Ukrainian women's team. And he's going to take us through his 48-hour-long journey from Kiev to Poland to escape the country. We'll also talk to him about how his players are doing, because many of them, of course, have, have stayed in Ukraine. We're going to spend the first 20 minutes, though, on, on clubs at polar opposite ends of the European football pyramid. And I'm looking forward to talking about some, some great cup shock stories. But we're going to start with, with the elite, um, because the failed European Super League project looks like it might be making a comeback. UEFA president Alexander Sheffrin has accused the owners of, of some of those clubs of trying to revive it. So it's been reported that Juventus, Real Madrid and Barcelona are all pushing again. Sheffrin made these accusations at the Financial Times business of a football summit, which, which is funny because the Juve president, Andrea Agnelli, was literally on the front row as he gave this speech. So here are the, the, the quotes. I mean, it was quite a long speech, but this is the best of it. I have to say, those speaking about the Super League are not speaking about football. I'm sick and tired of this. First, they launched their nonsense of the idea in the middle of a pandemic. Now we read articles that they're planning to launch another idea in the middle of war. Do I have to speak more about these people? They obviously live in a parallel world. Big words, Jules. Big word, yeah. Uh, Seferin, not happy at all. But maybe not as big as Javier Tebas, the uh, president of La, La Liga, who said that uh, the, the clubs, those three clubs at the heart of the Super League, lie more than Vladimir Putin. Mm. There you go. Yeah, he's um, he's gone in hard as well, basically yeah, saying if Agnelli doesn't explain it, then, then he's lying. I should just add here that Agnelli is speaking about this a couple of hours after we're doing this recording on yeah. Thursday afternoon, although I've, I've just seen Sam Wallace's reporting in The Telegraph that, that Agnelli is basically going to say he will fight UEFA. Um, Christoph, destined to succeed or destined to fail? Well, we'll have to see. I think uh, the, the most important thing will be what will the English clubs be doing because they made the whole project collapse last year when, when, when fans were protesting, but we we have like the same thing in Belgium for with the Beneliga. We're talking about it for 20, 25 years and every year it comes back and hopefully, uh, probably the Super League is something similar too. They kept, keep on talking about it, keep on talking about it and it doesn't get moving, although is a, a lot more money than uh, in the in the Belgian and the, in the Dutch League, to be fair. So it might be going, but I think that the the English clubs still have the key for this project to succeed or to, to fail. Uh, the company that, that was uh, was founded last year to uh, to start the, the Super League hasn't been dissolved either, which means that the plans are still there and that, yeah, I think there will be a lot of protests again uh, when if it all starts like last year. Christoph mentions the importance of the English clubs there when it comes to to Germany, obviously 
because of the way that German clubs are performing on the European stage right now, Bayern are important, but the chances of Bayern joining that, uh, given what kind of reaction there was from their members at the AGM towards the end of last year, towards their Qatar Airways deal and how how that prompted what I would call near riots from their fans, uh, I cannot see any chance of Bayern jumping on board that, nor any other German club, really. A Super League, it is, um, it's unforeseeable from a, a German point of view or a German club joining that right now. The, the one that would come to mind would be RB Leipzig because they are, um, they are built in a different way, but even they were not interested the last time it came round. So would would be very surprised if that was to change. Another one, another interesting one that I forgot to add, what's the position of, of PSG, Julien, in all the debate? Because by the time that the new Super League might be there, there would will have already been a World Cup in Qatar. What's the position of PSG in the whole debate? I mean, I think they're too close to UEFA and to Seferin and Nasser Khalifi as the head of the ECA, the club association, can't go nowhere near a, a new Super League. I mean, what's interesting is that this, this is a different version that Agnelli is going to present. Uh, there will be, sounds like there will be two, two leagues, the top league and then the second division, if you want top division, second division with promotion relegation. So it's not like a close league, like the one that they wanted originally the first time, first time rounds. But can they do it without English clubs? This is the key. I mean, it would not be a Super League if you didn't have City, Chelsea, United, Liverpool, uh, and I guess to a certain extent maybe Arsenal and Spurs. So can can they afford to do to do that without them? Because we know no. now the new rules in the Premier League prevent them prevent the English clubs even if they wanted to. I, I agree with you, Steve. I think I don't think they can do without them. And, well, J- and Jules, there's, from- a, there's a reason why it fell apart when the English clubs left, right? I mean, and that, exactly. that reason is it is still there. And in fact, obviously, Gary Neville's one of the people right at the heart of that, you know, the, the fan-led review of English football. And we haven't had the recommendations of that through Parliament yet. However, the whole point of that was off the back of the, the ESL collapse. You know, the clubs had to, had to, some of them had to really grovel to their own fans mm-hmm. after that. So the idea they would come back to the table is you know, risible, isn't it? Completely. I think completely. But again, the, the, what this means as well is maybe you, you open more talks with UEFA because this could only go ahead with UEFA's approval in a way. So what, you look at a new format of the Champions League maybe in five years' time, let's say, where you've got maybe a top division, a second division, and maybe you have some clubs, even if they don't finish in the top four in the leagues, but can still find a way of getting in. I don't know, something like that. Maybe. Shepherd sounds open to negotiations, doesn't he? With his his statements are amazing. I haven't forgotten uh, he called Agnelli a snake first time round. (laughs) Considering Agnelli, let's not forget, is the godfather of one of his children. So, you know, they used to be super close. Now they obviously clearly hate each other. There's a lot of resentment there. But I think I think it's and I think it's something we said from the beginning. This can only work if it's a new Champions League that if you want you call the Super League. Because other than that, I can't see I can't see this happening and, and everybody going through it all over again. Is there any appetite in France, would you say, for a Super League to see these kind of teams face off every week? I don't think so. I don't think so. The only thing I think 
that could accelerate the whole process is that English clubs would become very far too dominant very, very soon if, if they're not already. In the sense that I wouldn't be surprised if this season in Champions League, the four English clubs make it to the semi-finals, for example. And I think because the difference in terms of revenues for English clubs compared to the rest of Europe, even Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Juventus, is so big. You know, we, we've talking, we spoke recently about the, the new TV deal, the international uh, TV right deal for the Premier League that is going to trump everything that we've ever seen before. This is, this is a huge advantage for English clubs compared to the rest. You know, English clubs keep spending. The others have to be careful, for example. So I think the only way maybe other clubs, including the French clubs, start thinking, hang on a minute now, the English clubs are too strong. They're too strong financially. We have to do something, and the best way of doing something is, is we all get together and we try to... To compete that way, but that's the only way I see it because I think I think French fans feel very similar to to fans in other countries. And again, it's a bit different for us because we're not as strong a league as Germany or Spain or Italy compared to the Premier League. But I still I still wonder who really within the fans would want a Super League like that. Let's uh, let's jump to a feel good story because I think we all need one of those right now, and it, and it's the complete opposite to the concept of a of a European Super League. Or if you're listening on Thursday, by the way, we've got live commentary on Five Live of Everton against Boreham Wood in the FA Cup at eight fifteen tonight. So that's a club from the fifth tier, one step closer to the quarterfinals. But if you think we're good at upsets in this country, uh, I guess you might be surprised to learn that some other parts of Europe have us beat on on that front. Versailles. Their remarkable run in the French Cup came to an end on Tuesday. They lost 2-0 to Nice in the semi-final. So we'll, we'll get into why they're not the first tiny club to have some joy in that competition in a moment. But but Versailles specifically, Jules, wonderful story, and they come from the, the regionally separated fourth tier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, fourth tier in France. So technically not a professional league. However, because, um, because they've got... Uh, rich owners at Versailles, they've got a big budget. All the players now are still only focusing on football. Not is the, We don't have a baker in the morning that then goes training in the evening. This is not a club like that. We've had clubs like that in the past that uh, wrote their great stories in, in the French Cup. But in the case of Versailles, it's more like a club that is almost professional and making it really far. It was still a, an amazing story and they, they fell just short of the final, they lost to Nice on Tuesday night, and Nice were really good, and they're going to go f- to the final for the first time in 25 years. So well done to them. But those stories—that's why people love the French Cup in France more than any other countries. I think we've got huge upset where teams from the fourth, the fifth division, sometimes even lower sixth division, we've had reached the quarterfinals, the semi-final, even in the case of Calais, which is probably the the most famous case of all, in 2000, reaching the final and being that close. To winning it as well, so it's great to see whether it's a, it's a club like Versailles, who's really well structured with quite a lot of money, considering it's a fourth division club, or smaller clubs who still make it uh, with with a lot of them benefiting from the good work that top clubs or league or league the clubs academies are doing, and then releasing some of those players who then are very good for the lower leagues and that's how those upsets happen but yeah we, we, we're very familiar with them and actually we really love them Julian what's, what's the reason that Versailles didn't play Nice at home this is the one of the best bit of the story really is that right. uh, the, the game was scheduled in Versailles it was a Versailles Versailles with the home team in the draw and Nice the away team uh, the problem is 
in Versailles, the stadium is too close to the castle, which means that you're not allowed to play at nighttime because that would mean floodlights, and the floodlights will actually deteriorate some of the inside of the castle, including including the bedroom of the former king. So you're not allowed <laughs> to have floodlights. You can only play in the afternoon, which oh. is a problem because right now they top of the top of the league, which would mean promotion to the French third division, and the French third division plays on Friday evening. So if Versailles were to go up to the third division, they would have to play Friday evening, which means they could not play in their current home stadium because, again, no floodlights because you're too close to the former king's bedroom. This is brilliant. This is <laughs> this, I mean, I'm trying to think of it. It's a, it's a UNESCO World Heritage site, that, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I would suspect. Or the equivalent that we have in France, so like a, yeah, a protected site with very, very strict rules. Uh, and there's a lot of things you cannot do, including... And, and if you look at the map, where the castle is and where the stadium is, literally the stadium is 200 metres within the, the area where you're not allowed to have the floodlights or where the lights can deteriorate the inside of, the, of some of the rooms of the castle. I mean, it's a... If, you, if, if any of the listeners have been to the castle, it's an amazing place, really, to go and visit. I really encourage everyone to go and, and see. I think they're pushing it a little bit to say that floodlights could actually damage the, uh, the former king's bedroom. Julia, is that where... I've, I remember being at Euro 2016 visiting, visiting the Ireland, Ireland camp in Versailles. Were they training at, at, the, at the stadium of, uh, of Versailles at that point? Or don't yeah, you, you're right. Don't you, yeah. yeah, that's that rings a bell. The thing that is maybe the most upsetting... It's not upsetting, but then Versailles tried to play somewhere else in Paris or within the area. So they've asked PhD for the Par de Prince. It was a no. They asked the Red Star. Why did they say no? no? That is so know. PSG. It's the, what do you mean it's so PSG? <laughs> <laughs> we just talked about what a beautiful story this is. They won't let them use their ground for one game. Well, I don't know. They, I'm sure there was a reason. I don't know what the reason was. I'm sure there was a good reason. Red Star said the same. Paris FC said the same. You know, the, the Stade Charlotte in the centre of Paris was not available either. And then Nice said, hey, hang on a minute. We've got an idea. Why don't you come and play in our grounds, so the away grounds? But, we, you know, we, we're going to pay for your travel and we're going to let you keep the get receipts as well so you're going to make a bit of money but obviously you're going to play in front of our 20,000 fans which is not the same vibe at all can we just enjoy the fact that you know just talking about this story Archie just just lets us talk about some amazingly named clubs and towns and cities uh, you know Stade Montbaron I'm looking at some of the, the, the clubs that, that have, I mean, this, this club, a fourth-tier side that got to the semis last season, Remilly Valier. I mean, it, it's, I even noticed that, um, that they beat, Versailles beat 1980s BBC TV detective Bergerac in the quarterfinals. <laughs> Bergerac. Bergerac, indeed. A big community of uh, English expats, obviously, in Bergerac yeah. and in Dordogne. Um, we had Kevilly in the past, who I think reached the quarterfinals or the semifinal in 2010. The final, I think, Kevilly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or even Kevilly the final, maybe once. We, we love the stories. Steve, you haven't mentioned your favorite French club that you mentioned in the group uh, a few days ago, Goal FC. <laughs> oh, That's brilliant. The fact that there is a team in the same regional division as Versailles 
who were like the the, the rubbish team in your local five-a-side league, Goal FC. <laughs> <laughs> A bit of respect. They're going to go up as well, I think. They're top of the league, you know. To, to turn it to, to Germany, my, my sure. view from the outside about the German Cup has always been that it's kind of the opposite of that because you, you regularly see big clubs absolutely battering small clubs in the early rounds because they, they will go to a non-league team or, or whatever and, and play all their best players. Last season, Mönchengladbach won 8-0, Augsburg and Leverkusen both won seven nil, and Kern won six nil in the first round. I, I, I'd like to say au contraire, but but maybe Gegenteil uh, <laughs> is, is is what I should be saying to you, Ooh, Steve. Nice. Sure, nice. sure, those things do happen. But also in Germany in 2020, we had uh, FC Saarbrücken, who were also in a regionalised mm. uh, division at the time, become the first ever fourth tier team to reach the semi-finals of, of the German Cup. We had third-tier Armenia Bielefeld reaching the semi-finals back in 2015. Second division Hanover winning it back in 1992. But my favourite example is Hertha's second team reaching the final in 1993. So up until 2007, 2008, your second teams of these big clubs could take part in the Cup. That's no longer a thing anymore. But... This Hertha second team managed to reach the final and made it to the 77th minute before losing to Ulf Kirsten's uh, Bayer Leverkusen. And the story is really re remarkable because all, play all the players were between 18 and 23. They, amongst themselves, renamed uh, their, their stadium as the, the Weddinger Anfield Road. They used what? to have to, on the, the, the place where they were training, they had to put up the goals themselves in the park from playing in front of 800 people in the first, in the second round, because they got a bye in the first round. They then played in front of a couple more <laughs> the next time. And next thing you know, they're playing in front of the, the uh, in, in the Olympia Stadion, in front of 50,000 people. Um, and yeah, incredible that, they were able to make it through. Carsten Ramelow, I think, is probably the most high-profile name who was in that team, went to play uh, for Bayer Leverkusen himself then and, and played in Champions League final in 2002 with Leverkusen in the German World Cup final as, as well. So an incredible story. And and for me, the, the thing that really tops it all off is that Joachim Siegert is still at Hertha now. Uh, he was the coach of that second team. He was working as a tax man uh, at, at the time as well. But I think he quit that because he said that those files can go staple themselves now. So, yeah, wonderful story. So we could have had an Erta v Erta final, potentially. If, if Hertha's actual team had been good enough that year, yeah. potentially. That's amazing. But, but, yeah, you have had situations where in, 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 in the past where... Uh, the club's first teams have played against club's second teams. Uh, Stuttgart uh, played against their second team uh, in the early 2000s, I think it was, and uh, won 3-0. Bayern, I think, themselves had to face their second team at one point. I think they even went 1-0 down in that game before winning. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, that, that was something, but it's no longer the case now. I've seen a couple of these great stories in, in the early rounds of Champions League qualifiers as well. I, I remember going round Europe to do... A, a load of stories on that for the the BBC's World Football Programme, and the, my favourite one was because we all love the stories where it's like you know the the European equivalent of the postman who's also the centre forward. So I was in um, the Faroe Islands, 
and I spoke to the captain of the Faroese champions, and his day job was a travel agent. So he'd actually organised all the travel for their opponents coming over from Iceland. <laughs> now, just imagine how much fun you would have with that. Oh, I'm so sorry. The only way to do it was a three-day flight with two layovers. <laughs> <laughs> Um, right, let, let's move on to the um, to, to what's been happening regarding uh, football's support for for Ukraine and for Ukrainian people. You know, we, we've seen some really touching moments. Alexander Zinchenko and, and Vitaly Mikolenko before Manchester City played Everton. That was that was wonderful when they they came together and, and hugged, and we saw the whole stadium applaud them. I was at the, the League Cup final last weekend when. Chelsea fans, Liverpool fans, I saw Ukrainian flags at both ends of the ground. There was a, one particular that struck me because it was a, a Liverpool fan who had a Ukraine flag with you'll never walk alone written on it, which, which couldn't be more appropriate. Um, th this has been the case, Christoph, right across Europe, I would imagine. Well, it was similar in the Belgian league last weekend and, and even yesterday. Well, uh, we have a few uh, Ukrainian internationals playing in our league. So, uh, Club Brugge, for instance, their left back, uh, Sobol, uh, he got a huge uh, ovation on Sunday when he when he came on, uh, similar to what happened to Roman Yaremchuk at, uh, at Benfica, the images that everybody has already seen uh, right now, where Jan Vertonghen gave him the captain's band and all the stadium started cheering. cheering. We have seen similar things in, in Belgium because of, yeah, Ukrainian players being uh, playing in the league. Uh, what touched me the most was uh, was an interview I've seen with Roman Bezus. He plays for Ghent, also a Ukrainian international. And yeah, he just couldn't hold his tears and he told the story of uh, not even being able to train, uh, starting to cry during, during training exercises because, yeah, his family and his friends are, are still over and it was really a touching moment. I yeah, I, I became silent too. Then you really see the effect that it has on yeah people being far away from from friends and family. Some something yeah we have never experienced. One of the things that struck me, Archie, was was some powerful gestures from Robert Lewandowski. Yeah, uh, he wore as his captain's armband on on his right arm the colours of the Ukrainian flag, and was also emotional after the game uh, in his post-match interview talking about how sport cannot remove itself from the situation we must not accept what happens there and going on to say that he couldn't imagine playing against the Russian national team in a situation when armed aggression continues in Ukraine and his sentiments were echoed throughout the Bundesliga there was some sort of, of gesture whether it was in, in Frankfurt uh, with the word stop it Putin on their big LED screen all the players lining up for a, a moment's silence before the game I was in Augsburg uh, where they played Borussia Dortmund they had a they, they had the dove of peace on their shirts uh, and they had a whole playlist before the game uh, with with all these songs uh, for peace playing John Lennon's imagine and uh, it was very surreal to be in a football stadium at the weekend when you knew everything that's been going on right now. Well, last week on the programme, we heard from Ukraine women's team head coach, Luis Cortez, who was attempting to make his way back to Spain from Ukraine 
Um, but when we spoke to him, we could only speak to him for a few minutes, mainly because he was on the road from Kiev. It was really hard to hear him. I'm delighted to say we can now speak to uh, one of the men on his coaching staff who made the journey with him. Jordi Escala has has joined us on the Euroleagues. Jordi's in Barcelona now. Jordi, hello. Hello, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine. How are you? Everything okay. Here, everything is okay. When did you decide that, that you had to leave Kiev? I think that morning when... Obviously, we heard the bombs. We were with Luis. We tried to talk with the Ukrainian Federation, with the Spanish Embassy. We tried to, to gather as much information as possible. And it was a little bit confusing. Some people telling us to stay, some people, some people telling us to leave. And then we were talking and we just used our logic. We said, look, something's going on here. It's not good. So as far as we are from the point of conflict and as close as we are from the border, probably it's better for us so we decided to move but uh, but for a missed flight you wouldn't you would not be there would you well, tell us what happened yeah uh, we were playing a friendly tournament with the national team in turkey and the idea was to flew back to turkey in the morning arrive at noon and in the evening we had a flight to go back to barcelona but the first flight from turkey we it was delayed so we lost the connection and we lost also the connection to fly to Barcelona. So we had to sleep there, and the idea was next morning to take the flight to take a flight to, to Barcelona again. Can you tell us about that journey? You know, w- what did you see as you were trying to, to drive across the country that will, that will stay with you? <sighs> There's several things that you, that you see, but we can re- resume it probably as like the consequences of the war. You have to see all these traffic jam. Everybody's stuck. Nobody can move for hours, literally hours. And then when you start to move, then you see all these people walking both sides of the of the road with their belongings, just, I don't know, just a bag, just a suitcase, whatever they have. But in this temperature that we had there, it was almost five degrees, three degrees, at night lower than this. So... It's all together that these are the consequences of this of this conflict. Was it a frightening tip, trip? Because I can understand when you hear explosions that you that the whole trip you're thinking about what can happen to us now. Will we make it to the border? It was not that much because we didn't uh, face it directly. But uh, also you, you heard uh, one of these jets crossing uh, over the road and you, you realize like, okay, this is from Ukraine, this is from Russia. Uh, what is he doing here? Is he leaving some bombs there? We don't know. You don't know. This is the, maybe the most scary situation that you have because you start to think and you, you start to imagine what can happen. The rest of the trip is like uh, a lot of people, a lot of cars, everybody's stuck. Uh, you see the faces that everybody's worried, you know, nobody's speaking, and, and everybody's trying to, to get away from, from cave. What's going through your heads when, when you're making this journey? Because it, it just must be such a departure from the reality that you were living only a few weeks ago. Yes, it was like, uh, I don't know, slap in the face, like, come on, get up. And then you're in the in the van, and it's like a mix of feelings. One is telling you to go as fast as possible, to leave uh, Kiev as as fast as possible, the sooner the better. But you see that you cannot, 
because you're already stuck and there's a lot of time to in front of you to to get it so is this uh, both feelings like I have to go but I can go I cannot move and this is the most anxious situation then when you see that uh, the traffic little bit uh, goes and goes and you can move and you're 10 kilometers away 20 kilometers away 50 kilometers away then you start to live it relax did you fear not being able to leave the country being being stuck in Kiev or in Kharkiv or in another city where Unfortunately, you would not make it out of a border into Romania, into, I don't know, another country safely, and that you would have to be there during the war. I really wasn't, because we had the Ukrainian Federation taking care of us all the moment. They told us that, look, you are our responsibility. We'll do our best to keep you safe and get you out of the country. So, uh, obviously, we knew, we knew we were mentally prepared that leaving Kiev would be a chaos, that it would take a long time. So at this point, we were not that uh, I know that in a hurry to leave because uh, everybody was trying to do the same. Then we, when we got to Lviv, they told us we'll find a way to cross the border. Don't worry, it's up to us. And there's also these two moments with the train that it stopped, and we don't know why it stopped in the middle of nowhere. And, and we we stayed there for two hours, three hours. The second time was almost like five, six hours controlling the passports, theoretically. But we had no telephone connection, no internet connection, so we could not say anything to anyone. But you, you start to think again, it's like, why do we stop? Nobody's telling us why we stop. Uh, it's because there's a problem in front of us. Is it because, I don't know, there's some risk of bombing or is because maybe we're turning back we didn't know. But when you start to imagine things, probably is the worst. We, we've heard so much, Geordie, about, you know, some of some of the things and things that would have been really difficult to watch when when you and others were travelling and lots of reports of, you know, U Ukrainian men of, I, I can't think of a better phrase than, than fighting age, you know, effectively being told, you, you know, you can't leave, we need you to come and fight. But I wanted to ask, were there also sort of, you know, moments of warmth that you witnessed, moments of people helping each other in a crisis yeah it's difficult it's difficult because that situation everybody is like scared for themselves so they try to to get the best position for them but you see that there's also some collaboration some friendship some trying to help uh, these people uh, when we go to the train station you have to see how families have to be separated to leave their feather behind or their husband behind and it's uh, it's heartbreaking to see to see this. Jordi, have you been able to even think about your job or or football since then? What when you go through something like this? I know, I know. And we talk about uh, this with Luis even during the trip, as we had many hours, uh, and we realized that in right now our situation it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter at all. Uh, we know that maybe we lose our jobs, maybe we don't have a job, uh, but it, it doesn't matter at all, really, because mm -hmm. we talk with our players and we know the reality. There's some hiding in the subway, there's other in Kharkiv, they cannot get out. Some some of them, they tell you, no, it's been like two days without uh, contact uh, with my family. Or the other one that's say, saying, no, my children are in the other side of the city, but I cannot go there and be together so when you hear all these stories from them 
really uh, what what is less important is my job and in this case football you must be so worried about about your players Jordi and from what from what you've just said it's it's clear that you're obviously in contact with a number of them I imagine you spend a, a lot of time checking in with them and and just hoping that they can stay as safe as possible Yes, yes. Uh, obviously, uh, right now we are in a safe place, in a safe position. We don't have to worry about ourselves, but uh, we obviously worry about all of them. Uh, we could say that probably 60% of our team and staff uh, is in is in Ukraine, divided in different locations, and we always uh, keep in touch with them, to asking how they are, how their families, and see if there's anything that we can do for them so complicated i don't know another example is you have to hear from different players even from they are already out of ukraine but they're worried because their father is already in in the war and they don't know how is how is him and i know from from look because you, you and and louise you know you you use twitter throughout it to, to post photographs of what you were seeing and and your journey and i checked louise's and your twitter feeds this morning and what I didn't realise is that, you know, you're, you're not just contacting players and, and checking in on them. You're actively trying to do your bit now, aren't you? So so what have you been doing? Yeah, uh, as we said, right now we're in a safe position. But it doesn't mean we, we forget about all of this. So our the only way that we can try to help here is to do as much as possible to bring something there. There's several actions that we're taking pleasure now. For example, we're collecting foods, medicines, clothes to be sent there. The second action we could say that we're trying to, more specifically with our players, is to find them some place to play. We can try, we're trying to find in other countries a possibility for them to keep playing or at least to keep them out of Ukraine. That we think that best option is playing, but if not, staying out of Ukraine right now is also a very, very good possibility for them and the third one is we're starting some different auctions of sports equipment uh, that we asking for for professional players not only football but basketball and different other players to to give us something from them sign you know like a t-shirt a jersey whatever they have to to put it on action and with the money then we'll talk to different agencies and see what's best to do with that maybe we'll buy more equipment or more medicines maybe we buy some train tickets or plane tickets whatever it is this today exactly we started these auctions with Ansu Fati t-shirt this football club Barcelona player who oh, wow. who help us and it's really wonderful for from them from him in this case and we'll have many many more if you want to see it there's this web page called uh, Goal Solidary. It's in Catalan. Goal without the A and Solidary. But I don't know. GoalSolidary.com. If you visit there, you'll see that Ansus Fati's T-shirt is already there in auction. Jordi, this is when, when football is at its best, really, isn't it? When we all gather together. I mean, what you're doing is amazing. There's others around the world. This is when football, when you realize that it's more than just a sport that we all love playing and watching and etc. But that is, it, it, it can do so much amazing things in support of people who need it the most. Yes, completely true. I agree 100% with you. I can just the example of Luis and me, we, we could uh, have all this trip uh, from Kiev to Barcelona because of the Ukrainian, the Ukrainian national team. I the federation, the Polish federation, who help us from the border till Barcelona. So 
they also we also had the the Spanish uh, Federation behind. Uh, it, it's all about football. When something, I don't know, one disaster like this, uh, we see that football can do so huge, huge things for for everything. We in the end, this is a big business. It moves a lot, a lot of money, and we have the not we, not me, obviously, but in football, there's this huge power to to make things to change things and to to do things that really matter to people. I'm just going to give that that website address that you mentioned there Jordi for um for Jordi and the and the team as he was saying are, are auctioning off things for you know to help with with people in Ukraine. So it's Gol Solidari as Jordi said that's G O L S O L I D A R I dot com, and then you can go from there and, and find the link. Um, Jordi, thank you so much for um, for speaking to us, and it, it's you know it's been wonderful to hear from you, and you know your your players are in our thoughts, of course. Thank you very much. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share this experience with all of you. Thank you for talking to us. That's Jordi Escala on the coaching staff of the Ukraine women's team. Um, what an incredible story and an incredible effort. Um, let, let's touch on. On Roman Abramovich, Jules, um, he's confirmed that he's put Chelsea up for sale, and he says he's going to write off 1.5 billion pounds in in loans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Look, there's a lot of discussion. There is a lot of controversy about what that exactly means. Yeah. So, just for a couple of minutes, we're going to focus on who might actually be willing to buy Chelsea. And the Swiss billionaire Hans Jörg, I assume it's Hans Jörg Wies, Hans Jörg Wies, Wies, Hans Jörg Wies. Uh, he basically said, Jules, didn't he, that um, he's he's been offered the chance to buy the club. Yeah, that's right. And that Roman Abramovich want, wants a quick sale. I think we can tell our friend Ansjorg that this is not going to be quick. I mean, you don't sell a club like Chelsea uh, just like that. You know, quickly, I think there's a lot of things that come in consideration. You need approval from the Premier League. There's a, a lot of things will happen. But certainly, he's one of the guys... Who can who can potentially buy it? The thing is, whatever the cost of the club is. So okay, Abramovich is uh, the, the the loan, the money that Chelsea owes Roman Abramovich is not there anymore. But this club still has a huge value. So you you would still have to spend 1.5 2 billion pounds maybe to buy Chelsea Football Club. Not many people in the world right now on their own certainly can do that. I mean, some can, but it will it will it would be half of their fortune, uh, more than that for some. But if you put a consortium together, like, you know, me, Christophe, you and Archie probably all together can... No, not really. But some very rich people far richer than us can, I guess. Like Guillaume, maybe. Uh, maybe Guillaume, yeah. <laughs> uh, he already has a club, so... He's going to give up he his wage just like right. that, Steve. No, you're right. Exactly. You're right. Big, he, would, he would have to. He would have to sell Biggleswade as part of the deal. Um, but yeah, he, you just need a lot of money and a lot of backup, basically, and that's just to buy the club. That's not even investing yes. in then in players recruitment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there won't be many people who can afford it. But because it's Chelsea and it's a huge club and it's in the Premier League, you know there will be some candidates. Is Hans Jörg Wies Archie? Um, I can't think of a better phrase than a a serious bloke because. When it comes to takeovers and stuff, my rule of thumb is always if someone is talking about doing it, they're probably not going to do it. I think I think you got a, a decent point there. Um, I was speaking to a Swiss colleague yesterday who was telling me that he'd had no previous involvement in anything to do with Swiss football. But equally at the same time, it is quite something that he's come out and made a statement because he is generally somebody who 
stays in the shadows. Uh, I, I saw him described as being uh, the most influential Swiss in the world, which I thought was a bit harsh on Roger Federer. But mm. at the same time, I, the, the fact that he's saying himself when he has the fortune that he has as a billionaire, that he would need to be part of six or seven other people going in for it, I think that, yeah, as 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 you and Jules have, have both uh, intimated, it, this is some way off being sorted. He's 86 years old, so, I, I mean, there's a point where... <laughs> surely it's a business venture for him it can't be anything else right let, let's end with a bit of world book day then so i mean it says here favorite football book but given christoph who is the world's biggest cycling fan is on the show and given he's come dressed as harry potter like he does for every program i'm willing to expand that to favorite sports book and christoph you can go first it's a shame that Guillaume is not on, otherwise we could have said all of Guillaume's uh, books because he's written a lot. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not reading a lot of sports books unless it is for for making a story out of it or, or to have some, some background on things. I'm currently reading a, a book called The Ego is the Enemy about how your ego uh, uh, is very bad in a way uh, to do business and to deal with other people. So that's all about thinking. But if I have to pick a sports or a football book, I'm going to that book with a year with Hellas Verona, I think. The, oh, with yes. Verona, because I loved mm. that one uh, 20 years ago when I read it. Uh, it's one of the w- ones where I, yeah, stayed in love with it, with Italian football, I think. So that's definitely my favourite if I go back to football. Also, because it's I guarantee cool. Jules is not ready, Ego is the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> you mean Ego is a friend? <laughs> it is to you, mate, yeah. <laughs> What's your entry, Jules? <laughs> I went for Fever Pitch by Nick Hornby oh, because nice. when I moved over to, to London 18 years ago, yeah, met my wife, etc. This is the first book that she, she gave me. It was the first football book that I read in English, to be fair. Uh, and it's a fascinating read, especially if you're an Arsenal fan, of course, but the memoir that Nick and his relationship with football and with Arsenal, of course, from you know when he was a, a kid to to when he became an adult, pretty much uh, is sensational. I think the writing and it helped me a lot at the time understanding even more English football, the culture, the relationship between fans and their club, fans and the players, fans and some some key games that stays in your in your head for forever, whether it's a win or a defeat, whether it's a cup final or not or whatever. But yeah, I would pick Fever Pitch because I, I think it's a wonderful book. Archie, just to mention. Um, Christoph's choice helped helped teach me how to uh, how to swear successfully in Italian. Um, <laughs> that, that season with Verona book still stays with me. The uh, <laughs> the certain choice phrases, which I of course won't use now. I, I um, picked up my... um, I picked up a few of those from watching uh, Inspector Montalbano. But but yeah, we could we could do that another day on a, a podcast without language limits. <laughs> sure, I have my choice here. It is for very similar reasons. Uh, as, as Julian picked his in terms of the way it made me understand to be honest my own culture but also German football culture I would not have the job I have right now without this book it is English of Fußball by a certain Raphael Honigstein wow oh. cut that out and huh <laughs> <laughs> he definitely hasn't read it so like, shh, 
I, 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 I don't think he needs it either. So, um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's worth a read. But uh, no, in all honesty, I really opened my mind uh, in terms of, as somebody who had been very much a child of the Premier League, um, opened my mind up a bit in terms of how to look at everything. So it, it is and was excellent. Nice. Steve, gonna... Steve when, you're not, when you're not working or snowboarding or yeah. walking the dog and yeah. you're actually reading, what, what, mm. would you, what would be your pick for World Book Day? I do, love a, I do love a sports book. I also love a dystopian future book, to be honest with you. That's my, that's very, I'm reading um, Same Station like Eleven at the minute, which is, which is brilliant. But if we're talking sports books, and I appreciate yeah, this kind of... Uh, sorry. Yeah. This ends us <laughs> on a really serious note. But it's a very important note, and it is, in my mind, the best sports book ever written because it's not actually about sport, really. Um, it's about depression, and it is it is such an important book for anybody who is in any way um, interested in, in mental health, and it's The Tragedy of Robert Enker by, by Ronald Brang, which is... Uh, it's an incredibly powerful and emotional book. For anyone who doesn't know, it's, it's about... Obviously, Robert Enker is the, the German keeper who suffered terribly with depression and, and tragically took his own life in in 2009 it's an amazing uh read and a really important book echoing your sentiments 100 million percent on that steve absolutely I, and yeah, as somebody absolutely. who has suffered with depression as well i i wouldn't have the understanding of exactly what i'd felt before without that book it yeah incredible right there with you and i think a lot of people will um We'll be nodding along right now as well. Archie, Jules, Christoph, it's always a pleasure. I will speak to you all soon. As always, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to The Locker Room on Joy 99.7 FM. The podcast will... Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Be available online at myjoyonline.com in 30 minutes. This production was powered by Joy Sports and supported by the BBC World Service. Point seven FM. Joy 99.7 FM. Joy, 99.7 FM.
for the mountain waiting for so long. Oh, no, 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 no. My head, you tell for my head. I know fit to reset. I know fit to connect. Waiting there. Control to search, pause, reverse, and record your favorite shows. Now, when you download the My HD Plus app on your mobile and link it to your HD Plus decoder, you get free data to watch TV on the go every month. Visit any multi TV dealer or Electroland outlet to purchase an HD Plus decoder and stay in control of your TV viewing. HD Plus, enjoy them, feely feeling. No matter how your day is going, isn't it comforting to know that there's a place where you can relax and kick off your stress? The Cosmopolitan Mix on Joy FM with Dory Nando has it all. Education, inspiration, entertainment, celebrity interviews. What's up, man? Some way, Some way, Best variety of local favorites. Good morning. 